rev it up and welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 2,432. Be prepared to be inspired. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Hello, inspiring automotive enthusiasts, and welcome to Cars Yeah. Today I'm back in Southern California, my roots in Carlsbad, California, a very beautiful place along the coast north of San Diego, with a very special guest by the name of Dean Case. Dean, welcome to Cars Yeah. Do you have any gear, and are you ready to release the clutch? I'm ready. All right. We're going to have some fun. Now, I always ask people before I introduce them and we get into your career path and a lot of other fun things in the world of cars is to tell me something that most people don't know about you. Now, I want to leave this in because you have a bit of an obsession with music, in particular car songs, right? Yeah. What is that all about? Uh, I don't know. I've just always been into music, and then it was kind of interesting. You know, the obvious ones, Shut Down, Little Deuce Coupe, 409, all those. Then I started collecting the really obscure ones, and I've got like 1,400 now in my, oh my iTunes gosh. collection. But mainly, I did a project with Rhino Records 25 years ago. So there's a box set of, a four CD box set of Hot Rod songs. Oh. Really obscure ones. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Wow. You know, this is interesting to me. And the reason I brought it up was uh, the company I was with before I started doing my podcast, I got to design our corporate headquarters uh, at Grio's Garage. And I got to do a lot of unique detail things into that structure. And one of the things I came up with, and it was actually after going to Buca de Beppo, which is an Italian restaurant, is I piped in music into the bathrooms. Because you always think, you know, bathrooms, there's bathroom noises no one wants to hear. So yeah. why not have music playing? And my what I did was I bought I, one of those little iPods back then, the, the funky ones, and I put car songs on it like you know. I think I found about 300 or something. The fact that you found 1,400 completely blows me away. But the car songs I piped in, there were all these different car songs mixed in with some racing car sounds, if you will. But yeah, but I'm, yeah we're, we're going to get my hands on your 1,400 car songs. Well, I might have to send you a list. I can. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's a, that's amazing. That's pretty pretty fun. If you think back to all those, what was one that really stands out for you? If you could just pick one for our talk today. Oh, probably Mark Knopfler, Speedway of Nazareth. Oh, I love that one. Yeah. 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 That one is, is very, very cool. Yeah. Some about throwing a hammer through a wall, Unser or something. Like yeah. That. Yeah. <laughs> I remember that. Oh my gosh. Well, that's pretty darn cool. Well, let me introduce you because you've had quite the life around the automotive world. Dean Case progressed from race fan as a kid to automotive engineer as an adult before devoting the past 20 years of his professional career to automotive communications with an emphasis on motorsports and engineering PR. Hmm, I'll have to ask you what that means. He has been a staff engineer with Mazda, Ford, and Nissan. After going freelance, Dean has had contracts with SAE International, Mazda Motorsports, Aerovironment, Motivo, Grassroots Motorsports, Ferrari North America, and SRO Motorsports, to name just a few. On the electric vehicle front, he was part of the Ford EV team from the 1990s and had a Nissan Altra EV. Wow, that's a car for the past. As his company car from 1998 to 2006. On the motorsports front, 
Dean has worked for Ford Racing, helped launch Nismo in the U.S., and was the Mazda Motorsports Communications Officer for over a decade. He has also been a longtime volunteer with SAE and has given automotive career talks to in over 50 universities. What a life. So we'll be back to learn a lot more about this in a moment, Dean, but first a word from our sponsors. So please give them a little listen, and we'll be right back. Buckle up. Years ago, when it was time to renew my collector car insurance policy, my carrier's rates went up, way up, but my usage was the same and I never made a claim. I didn't even have a ticket. So what's with that? So I turned to American Collectors Insurance. Has your collector car insurance recently raised your rates for no good reason? Tired of paying an annual membership fee? Then it's time to look around and call American Collectors Insurance. I shopped around, I asked friends for recommendations and found a winner that I can trust. And boy, I'm glad I did. I saved hundreds of dollars every year and slept better at night knowing my baby was properly insured. American Collectors Insurance have been protecting vehicles since 1976. They provided me with an agreed value insurance policy backed by their history of taking great care of their clients. What could be better than that? So give them a call and ask for a quote today. 866-ACI-YEAH. That's 866 224 9324 and protect the ones you love like I did with American Collectors Insurance. Classic car insurance designed by collectors for collectors. For several years now, you've heard me talk about Linkage Magazine. I've been a subscriber since the start. They're talented and creative team brings you a spectacular publication and website that shares the automotive passion from a worldwide perspective. Linkage is about driving, restoring, collecting, and firsthand experience at collector car auctions and more. They bring you real-world values plus rational, experienced opinions on the current markets. They cover the automotive world and the people who share our passions. And Linkage Magazine has grown, mailing you six issues annually. Join me on this journey with Linkage. They're geared for the automotive life. You can subscribe at LinkageMag.com. So, Dean, uh, I want to kind of go back and start at the beginning. Now, I understand you went to school at Cal Poly, or Poly Royale. I've been to a couple of those parties <laughs> way back in the early, well, late 70s, actually. Uh, last time I went to one of those, learned about a tractor pull which I'd never seen one of, oh, those, yeah. one of those before. But let's kind of go back because what I found interesting about you was you became an engineer. You went and worked on all these vehicles and things. Then you made a big career switch into communications and media. And I really want to learn about that too. But let's go back to the beginning. Cars, engineering, what's that all about? Well, I mean, I was always a car geek growing up. No exaggeration. We never watched baseball, football, hockey, basketball, any of those on TV. We watch car racing, what there was mm-hmm. on TV, and went to Riverside Raceway, Ontario Motor Speedway, Ascot, Lions Drag Strip, all the local tracks, just as fans. And it just seemed like the best way to get in the automotive industry was engineering. I pursued engineering to get my way into the automotive world. Okay. And as you graduated from Cal Poly, a great school, by the way, I loved going up there and visiting. I was dating a girl way back when whose sister was uh, going to school there. So that's what got me up to Cal Poly is some fun trips up the coast. Your first job was with uh, Mazda, I understand, right? Yeah, straight out of school, Mazda R&D. And it was pretty amazing. Uh, after you sign all the HR paperwork, non-disclosure stuff, They take me back into the studio, and there was a full-size clay model of a two-seat sports car that was still two and a half years away from launch. 
Okay. And that was the original Miata. Yeah. So I, I was there. I mean, I, I, I joke that I'm one of the few people who worked at Moss in the 80s who does not claim to be the father of the Miata. <laughs> you know, but I worked on I was a you know junior engineer there from 86 until I left in 93. Oh, my gosh. And you worked on some cool deals. I mean, the, uh, the Miata, when that car came out, I remember I worked, I was working in advertising at the time, and one of our designers pulled up in the first gen Miata and I walked out and I went, Oh my gosh. And he goes, toss me the keys. He goes, you got to drive this thing. Uh, I was driving a Porsche 911, a 74 911 at the time is my daily driver. And I just remember getting that car and I almost didn't want to like it because I'm a German sports car guy, but I came back with a yeah. huge smile on my face. Well, my dad owned a uh, T9 911E and he sold that to buy one of the first Miatas. Oh my gosh! Wow. Well, you also worked on the MX-6, the first gen mm-hmm. MPV, the the third generation RX-7. My mom actually bought the first generation RX-7, which I went, Mom, what are you doing? That's pretty pretty cool. That those times yeah. at Miata, what was that like? It it was amazing. I mean, uh, worked with Bob Hall, who's the real father of the Miata. And uh, it's just it, working in a branch office of an overseas company is an experience. I mean, I had some amazing Japanese bosses. Uh, my first boss there, Jiro Maibayashi, and he had over a hundred design patents to his name. I mean, oh just an incredible uh, person to learn from. After we launched the Miata at the Chicago Auto Show in February of '89, uh, my boss and I drove one Irvine, California, to Chicago. Oh wow! March or early April, so we were like several months before the car hit the dealerships, but it was on the cover of Road and Track, Car and Driver, Automobile, all of them. And so, you know, the first day or so, we think we're like rock stars because <laughs> we're in this car that no one had seen. And we were, no, we were the roadies. The car was the rock star. But it was amazing to drive that car across country when everyone knew what it was and they were flocking to it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're, you were the, the superstars, picture opportunity after picture opportunity. And my understanding is after that, you went to Ford and did some work at Ford Motorsport? Well, Ford electric vehicles first. And, you know, so I got into Ford in 93 because the original Zev mandate, you know, this whole thing was, you know, pushing towards zero emissions in 2035. Well, back in 1990, CARB did the first Zev mandate which in theory, in 1998, 2% of all vehicles sold in California were supposed to be zero emissions. Mm. And okay. so everyone was scrambling <laughs> to figure out how they were going to do that. So I got hired by Ford, and we chased down a bunch of blind alleys trying to figure out what would work. And finally, in 95, CARB backed off and said, yeah, the battery technology is not there. No one will buy these vehicles in their current state. But we're going to still force the seven largest automakers produce uh, demonstration fleet. So there was a memorandum of agreement. And so what Ford ended up doing was we produced the uh, electric Ranger. So the, the the Lightning is not the first electric pickup truck Ford did. They did, you know, a few thousand uh, Ranger electrics back in 98. Yeah, you say that to some people and they go, what? I don't remember any of that. I, they did that? Yeah, well, most all, most all the vehicles that were done, all these MOA cars we refer to them as, were fleets only. Uh, lease only for the most part. There were only a handful that ended up truly sold to private parties. Uh, but while I was there, one of the things that's interesting at Ford is you'd have an annual performance review, but you'd have a six-month coaching session with your boss. And, you know, they, they'd ask you, so what do you want to do next? What's your career aspirations? And, you know, if you say the normal things like, well, I'd like to um, get my MBA and move into product planning or whatever, it's like, okay, we have a path for that. 
I would just say, well, I want to either be transferred to Ford Australia or get into Ford Motorsports, <laughs> which were not normal career aspirations. Right. And finally, I got a boss who said, well, let me look into it. And I got an interview with Ford Motorsports. And the way it worked there was the junior program managers were all on loan from other departments. So I got to go to the Ford Racing Group, but my salary was still being paid by Ford Electric Vehicles. Oh, wow. So, so I got one year in motorsports in 97 working with Tommy Kendall, okay. uh, Roush Racing and Gloy Racing. So, uh, yeah, Tommy Kendall's become a, a great friend over the years. I know he's been a guest on your show. He has. He was my 500th guest, and then he came back. He, he asked me if he could come back for my 1,000th show and interview me, and that's what he did. <laughs> I, I was really honored. I love that guy. He's great. So that was my entry into both Ford and then eventually Ford Racing. But, you know, we could not, we did not care for Michigan winters. Um, I, <laughs> I joke and tell people, <laughs> yeah, I joke that if we stayed there five years and I stayed six, there was going to be a divorce or a homicide. Smart money was on a homicide. Uh, so yeah, we moved, tough. We moved back. So, no, I mean, I enjoyed my time at Ford, uh, but we wanted to come back to California. I understand, having grown up there. Yeah, the weather's incredible. And you also then went to work at Nissan. Yeah, everyone thought I was nuts in 98 <laughs> because I left Ford Motor Company, which was doing extremely well, turned down Toyota, and took a job at Nissan when they were jokingly referred to as beleaguered Nissan. That was before Renault stepped in. Mm-hmm. And they were $20 billion in the red. Oh, my gosh. But it was a really, it was a good culture. I mean, the people in the engineering group within Nissan North America was just a really cool group of people, which is what attracted me. Well, when you talk about being that much in the red, how did they turn that whole thing around? Uh, well, part of it was the Renault involvement, but the U.S. had already kind of turned things around. I mean, you know, every car company is cyclical. When I speak to student groups, sometimes I'll get the question, is like, well, who's the smartest car company? And I somewhat sarcastically note, whoever has done the fewest stupid things over the preceding 36 to 48 months, because it seems <laughs> like every car company shoots themselves in the foot periodically. Oh, yeah. And, you know, and some of that, though, when you think about it, you look at the timing. Uh, if you're a fan of, like, you know, that last generation RX-7, the 300ZX, the Supra, you know, all of those died out not because they were bad cars, but because of the yen dollar exchange rate in the Japanese economy. Yeah. And so you've got a lot of these things that some of it, you know, a car company can be doing quite well in one market and failing in others. Mm-hmm. And so Nissan was really already on the comeback in the U.S., and it took a little bit more of a turnaround in Japan and some of the other markets. But um, but it was just, you know, it was a good time to join Nissan. Uh, got to be participate in the launch of the 350Z, because after the Z had been discontinued, after the 300ZX. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, launch a Nismo. So I got to do some really cool things at Nissan. No doubt. And that was also, I went, I did my career change from engineering to communications while at Nissan. Well, that was my next question is you did a very interesting thing to switch from engineering to communications and media. What prompted all that? Uh, well, a lot of things in life are dumb luck of being at the right place at the right time. <laughs> yeah, that works good sometimes, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, I was, I was the Nissan uh, I was the model line engineer for the Ultra Easy, mm-hmm. um, and one of the things they asked me to do was to go out and help support some media events. They were launching the, I think it was 2000 facelifted Frontier pickup truck, which wasn't a big story, so they took along the Nissan Ultra EV and the Hyper Mini 
and the Tino um, hybrid that Nissan had at the time. And so I was just going along as the EV Q&A guy. And ultimately, the funny thing is the person from marketing was supposed to give the overall EV presentation. The role changed like two weeks before the uh, press tour we did. And so the new person was kind of thrown in the deep end. And you think about electric vehicles, there's a lot of new terminology. Just the vocabulary is different, particularly thinking back to 1998, you know, 2000, that time frame. And so I ended up giving the presentation in front of the media, <clears throat> despite the fact I had no real experience in that. And I held my own uh, with the journalists. And so a few months later, there was an opening in corporate communications at Nissan. And I called uh, Tim Gallagher, who was the uh, PR manager, and said, hey, Tim, before I commit career suicide in engineering, <laughs> would, I, would I even stand a chance of applying for this job? Because I don't have you know, a PR or a journalism background. He goes, I think his response was, yeah, it'd be good to have someone in the department who knows how cars work. Uh, there you go. And so I, I discovered my niche really is explaining technical topics to non-technical people. Ah, very interesting. Cool. And, you know, I used to get this strange compliment. Your writing is excellent. Then there's a pause for an engineer. <laughs> it's kind of like being told you're the healthiest person in the intensive care ward. You're not really sure if it's a compliment or not. Uh, but most engineers hate to write and hate giving presentations. So uh, I enjoy it. Well, you know, this is interesting because my, my son is UX writer at Google, and he interfaces between the code guys, you know, the in-deep code, the engineers basically, yeah. and then how the customer reads and perceives information or gets information on the other end. And he said the reason they created this entire department, he works for multiple entities within the company, was because that, yeah, the folks that are these engineers, they aren't really the best communicators. They're great, brilliant engineers, but right. it's like trying to read an Ikea how to put it together. It's like, who wrote this? You know, yeah. <laughs> this has got to be easier than the way you describe it. So I understand. Well, today you have your own business, right? In uh, communications? Well, I'm a freelance consultant. I mean, I, mm -hmm. yeah, I have a business, but I don't have any staff or anything. I just, you know, I, I'm now at a point in my life I can kind of pick and choose clients I want to work for. Nice. Yeah. Well, one of them I noticed is Motivo, since they're one of your primary clients. Can you tell us about them? Yeah, and that was a great uh, connection. You know, you talk about connecting the dots. Uh, back in 2006, my first um, contract as an independent was running the Formula SAE comp design competition, the student competition here in California. And so I had to recruit 200 volunteers to run the event. So one of the people I approached was Rod Millen, who was running an engineering firm. You know, I started as motorsports, but Rod built this large company, very successful track development company. And I met some of the guys there, got them involved as volunteers. Years later, and then all of a sudden out of the blue, 2012, I get a phone call from a guy, Praveen Pimenta, who's at this company, Motivo. He had left Millenworks after Rod sold it and just asked if I had any bandwidth to help him with some media relations. Like, sure. And Motivo is, I jokingly refer to the early days, it was Millenworks 2.0. Because Rod was the first race driver to figure out that if all you're doing is racing, you have no economic stability. You can win the championship and your sponsors are still going to do something else the next year. And so he started developing other things like applying technology from Baja 1000 to developing military vehicles and just doing other really weird stuff to keep really smart people employed all year round where you could dump the profits into those racing. 
So Motivo is kind of taking that approach, not so much with the motorsports, but having a very diverse portfolio of uh, projects. And I joke that we're kind of the poster child for SAE. We've done, no exaggeration, one-wheel, two-wheel, three-wheel, four-wheel, 18-wheel vehicles, things that fly, things that float, and things that farm. Wow. So, we've yeah, we've done all kinds of crazy vehicles there. Um, and it's usually on very short time frames for companies to say, a lot of times it's smart companies who just don't have the bandwidth or they don't have they don't have the time to assemble a team to tackle a project. So they'll come to Motivo and say, can you help us solve this? Mm. So I've done some really wild stuff. The most interesting one, though, is an electric tractor that's driver optional. We spun that off of a separate company, which is Monarch Tractors. Cool. Well, you know, it's funny because my dad grew up on a farm. And so I guess maybe, and I never lived on a farm. He he was the one of five kids who came out west, became an architect. So I grew up on the coast, a long-haired surfer kid. But I go back and visit. And I look at some of these, you know, you come across these wild YouTube pages. And one is a farming deal. And these tractors nowadays, yeah, you don't even need a driver. The, the guy or gal sits in the thing and then programs it and it just runs down the rows of corn and harvests and wheat or whatever yeah. it is. So why why have a driver in there? I think it just do its deal and come back and unload. It's pretty phenomenal. Well, you've probably been to SEMA, I'm assuming, many times. 31 times. Yep. Yeah. But you've probably never been to World Ag Expo, have you? No, I haven't. Although I've been to Intermechanica yeah. in Frankfurt many times, and there oh, they wow. had some yeah. quite spectacular large industrial trucks out in there. I mean, Intermechanica is bigger than the SEMA. It's just maybe not now, but it, it's huge. Yeah. And you'd look no, at I've some heard of the, it. yeah, you'd look at some of these vehicles and go, and this was a while. It's been a long time since I've been there. Pretty phenomenal engineering feats uh, designed into these vehicles. Well, you know, World Ag Expo is in Tulare, so halfway between Bakersfield and Fresno, and SEMA for farmers. Yes. Unbelievable equipment. And yeah, I'm like you, a city kid, so I'd never seen any of this stuff until I went to Cal Poly. Uh, and so it was kind of fun to get reunited with a uh, agricultural project later in life. Very cool. Uh, Motiva, I'll put a link to that website. Uh, I was glancing at that, and it's it's pretty pretty phenomenal. Well, your career path, that's why I really wanted to have you on the show, because it's very interesting, and it shows listeners out there that want to get into the automotive sector. There's lots of different avenues and ways to go, and uh, you can even change course along your path if you see something that's more interesting, like what uh, Dean has done today. That leads me to a question about what I call our driving inspirations, people that have been very helpful to you in the past. I assume with all your different experiences, there are a lot of them. You mentioned the Japanese gentleman when you're at Nissan. Is there somebody, though, that maybe stands out for you that really had a, a big impact on your career path? Oh, man, there's several. I mean, I when I give my student presentation, I put up a gratitude slide, and I've got like 50 names on oh people gosh. who did things. Okay. No, it's <laughs> yeah. I, mean, but, I mean, if I had to pick out just a couple, the ones that had a huge impact, uh, my first mentor, Eric Barr, I met at, when I was doing a an internship, a co-op, and he's the one that got my resume into the chief designer at Mons. He actually was selling a, a car, and Tom Matano, who you interviewed, mm-hmm. came to look at Eric's car. A few months later, there was an ad in the LA Times for a junior engineer, and my Eric handed uh, my resume to Tom Matano. Wow. I, that's how I got my interview at Mazda. I got into Ford thanks to Dr. Roberta Nichols. So, you know, there's been a whole ton of people who've been very, very helpful. That's probably why I like to do the student presentations. That I think the best way I can thank those who helped me is to help others further downstream. 
Yeah, well, we're going to talk a little bit about giving back in a moment here, but you're right. It's something that when I talk with young people, I always say, you know, it, it, the old saying, sometimes it's not what you know, it's who you know. And making these relationships and keeping them and nurturing them and bringing them forward uh, really helps you throughout your life. No doubt, though, you've met up with some challenges. I mean, working in all the different fields that you've worked in, is there one that stands out for you that was quite challenging to go through, but now you look back and say, you know, it taught me a lot of things. Yeah, well, a couple of times I tell students sometimes having a really bad boss is a good thing. <laughs> yes. Because if you, if, you have a, if you have a great boss, you're inspired to do great work. If you have a mediocre boss, you're just kind of like, well, at 5 o'clock and I leave. If you have a compelling jerk of a boss, you're compelled to find a better job, you know, or find a new career path. So, I mean, there's been a couple of times where I've had that happen where it's kind of like, yeah, need to move on. You know, well, and it may not have been a bad person. It was just a bad match personality-wise. Well, you're right. My son, during one of his summer jobs uh, when he was in high school, had a very challenging boss, and he would come home going, Dad, I don't know how I can do this. And I remember saying, Blake, throughout your life, you're going to encounter some challenging people. This is a good test of how you can work with them. Stick with it. Find out what this person's needs and wishes are and how you can do better and see what you can learn from it mostly. You know, the good thing is it's only for a few months and it's over with. Unlike getting stuck with a mortgage and, you know, car bills yeah. and everything and you just feel like you can't leave because it's miserable. But I like the way you said it. Having a really bad boss can be a good thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think identifying it, right, uh, is important mm -hmm. and realizing, okay, there are some other alternatives out there because or go out and start your own business. Even better yet. So you you can learn from a bad boss how not to treat others when you're the boss later on. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah very cool. Is there a special vehicle that you've had in your past that really stands out that you could share a story about? Uh, my first car was a 1967 Mini Cooper. Oh my gosh, how fun. And, yeah, and I bought it. It needed far more work than I realized when I bought it. Of course, you buy a used car when you're a teenager. You don't really look at it. It was an old British car. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so that car meant a lot because, one, I loved Mini Coopers, and I spent a year restoring it with my dad and some help from my brother, and so that was cool. And, you know, I jokingly tell people, like, every time it broke down, I was able to fix it on the road. <laughs> yeah, well, there's your engineering skills coming through, even at a young age, Yeah, which was cool. I got to, I had a roommate who's had a friend with one and when I was in college, and he brought it over one day, and I'd never ridden in one, much less driven one. And he drove me, I was living in Pacific Beach at the time, going to UCSD, and we drove up to the cross at Mount Soledad in La Jolla, and there's this windy road you get to go up. And he drove up and said, okay, you go down and drive up. Oh my gosh, I couldn't believe what that car could do. What? Oh, I know. Yeah, little tiny wheels and tires, and the engine looked like a sewing, yeah. sewing machine. Quite phenomenal. So here's a bit of a car psychologist question for you. If uh, I was to crawl into your head and see what you would be as a vehicle, manifest as a vehicle, reincarnated as a vehicle, being this engineer and communicator might bring an interesting answer to this question. What would you be and why? Oh, well, I still will go back to that first Miata. I mean, just because it was lightweight, simple, mm -hmm. direct, no frills. I mean, that car is probably the one that, you know, I have the biggest connection with, even though I was a relatively small player in the program. Well, it sounds cool. And uh, those cars, boy, they've come a long way. When you think about motorsports, how many groups race those things uh, over time. And whenever I see the first Miata, now it's kind of like seeing the first Boxster. 
and they just have evolved, yeah. but they're kind of the same, but they've evolved so much. And that Miata was so simple, very simple, clean car. No, it was. It was, you know, back to basics. It was, everyone said there was no market for those cars. Like, no, there's no market for unreliable British ones. If you have <laughs> one that's reliable, then there's a big market for it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, those things were, I love the way those things shifted. That shifter right there, just click, 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 click. Ah, yeah. Yeah, it was so much fun. Well, we talked about it, touched on it briefly, but I know there's ways that you like to give back. You said you've spoken at many universities to help young people try to understand what their opportunities are. So there's a lot of helping you give there I'd love for you to chat about. And also, uh, I understand you've been a volunteer as it relates to animal, uh, helping animals and so forth. So, uh, And also this uh, Mazda Motorsports and Project Yellow Light program that you were part of. Can you talk about all these things that you've done to give back and why you think that's important? Yeah, well, the, the SAE one is pretty simple. I'm a part of the SAE Industrial Lecture Program, which means that any SAE student chapter can invite me. And there's like 35 other speakers that are available resources. Mm-hmm. Um, my talk is non-technical. It's the things they don't cover in engineering school. So uh, I did one last week. Uh, a couple. I've done University of um, UC San Diego recently. I did University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Um, Cal State Long Beach and probably got a couple more uh, over the next couple of months but th- those are fun those are a part of the SAE program and that's something for student any anybody who's in high school or K through 12 world listening to this type of podcast or parents trying to influence where their kids contemplate uh, going to a school that has a formal essay or Baja essay project and there's a lot of resources tied into the local industry wherever that school might be uh, so that's one the, uh, the animal stuff is fun. Uh, I'm a big ad- advocate of uh, shelter animal adoption. And working with Mazda Motorsports, what I basically was talking with a lot of young racers, and you know, if you're racing at whether it's a Spec Miata or you know, uh, Skip Barber Race Series or one of these junior level series, you know, the stepping stones to get to the major leagues, uh, there's not. You're trying to find sponsors, but you know, Coca-Cola is not going to sponsor you racing a spec Miata. They don't need you. And I, I would tell these young racers that a blank race car was a wasted opportunity. You cannot sell it to a commercial sponsor, give it away to a nonprofit. And so my demonstration program, my pet project, pun intended, was promoting shelter animal adoption. And so the first time we were able to team up with uh, the Mutt's comic strip characters, Earl the Dog and Mooch the Cat, and it was a huge hit. And we, we ended up overall, uh, thanks to Jay Amistoy and Jeremy Barnes at Mazda and some others, Robert Davis, I think we ended up raising about $150,000 for animal wow. shelters with that program over a few years. Yeah. And, but also just to demonstrate to the young racers that giving back is beneficial. That if you do this, you don't charge the nonprofit, you, you help them for free, but your other commercial sponsors get the benefit of that publicity. And when I'm dealing with teenage race drivers, a lot of them don't necessarily have a great depth of experience. And so I suggested Project Yellow Light is a way to um, give back. No no teenager wants to listen to you or me lecturing about putting the cell phone down when they're driving. But if, if it's a 17-year-old professional race driver saying, put down the phone, they listen, or they're more yeah, likely yeah. to listen to peer-to-peer mentoring. And so we teamed up with Project Yellow Light. We did, we knew we didn't have the bandwidth to create our own program, so I researched ones that were out there. And a lot of them were similar to MAD. They all came from a family's personal tragedy. 
And, you know, a lot of times it'd just be like a logo and a t-shirt. But when I saw Project Yellow, like, Julie Garner was the founder of it. Her son was tragically killed in a distracted driving accident. Uh, Julie worked for an advertising agency. So she put together a program to where there'd be an opportunity for kids to develop 25-second PSA videos um, on distracted driving with scholarship money there. And because she was the connection with the ad agency, it was tied into the ad council. And these ads have appeared. I've seen them on TV. It's great. But we got the young monster race drivers to participate in the program. And so we had the uh, we had uh, several representatives from NHTSA show up to one of our races back in 2012 at the Baltimore Grand Prix to help launch the program. So that was really something I think that was very helpful on both a public safety aspect, but also mentoring the young drivers to show them the value of giving back and do it with no, no expectations, but you don't know what might pop up positively later on. Well, it's tremendous. Thank you for, for all that you do, all worthy, worthy causes. H- how about a great book? We love to share books here. Is there a book you could recommend? Oh, man, so many. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of them. Uh, well, it's kind of funny. I know that you talked to Garth Stein. The yep. Art of Racing the Rain oh, is yeah. a great one. Sylvia Wilkinson is probably one of my absolute favorite authors and has become a friend. She's written, she's written a bunch of novels, but she's also written some of the greatest car books out there. And her most recent one is Dirt Tracks to Glory, which is the early days of stock car racing, just back in print after 30-some-odd years of not being in print, so she updated it. So that would be one that's new that maybe a lot of your listeners haven't heard or read already. Awesome. I'll make sure to put a link to that on Dean's show notes page. And yeah, Garstein, of course, I believe his book is probably the most recommended, if either that or A.J. Bames' book, Go Like Hell, yeah. are two of the highest recommended car books that I've heard here. But uh, I was lucky to, to meet Garth years ago at a book signing when he launched some kids' books and uh, right. bought those for what I hoped would have, have grandchildren one day. And now I'm blessed to have two. So we'll share those with them when they're old enough to pay attention to listen and maybe when they can read them later on. But he's the local guy up here in the Pacific Northwest. Right. So, uh, yeah. Well, we put, we put Garth into a Mazda race car nice. and we uh, badgered Patrick Dempsey into reading the book to where then Patrick bought the movie, right? Oh, yeah. So, there you go. Okay. Well, there you go. It's yeah. all about connections, right? Just like you were, we're talking about. Well, let's go on the ultimate yeah. drive here. Uh, if I could park any car in the world in your driveway and allow you to take it for a drive, uh, what would it be? And more importantly, if you could take somebody with you, even somebody from the past who's no longer with us, who would that person be? Well, the ult- my ultimate car, and I have no idea how these actually drive them, be the original Lamborghini Miura. I still think that's the only exotic that I, you know, find really appealing. Um, I have no idea what it's like to drive one, but that would be the ultimate bucket list car for me to drive. I think would be a original Miura. And um, you know, this may sound hokey, but I would just take my wife. Yeah, well, that's a good answer, a good politically correct answer. And obviously, yeah. those cold winters didn't lead to divorce or or murder, and uh, she's right. still there. So that's a good good way to take it. Yeah, is there a is there a road or a drive that you haven't been able to do that you think would be cool to do in that car? I mean, anywhere in that car would be cool, except in traffic. Uh that would probably be someplace in Europe. I mean, I've driven. You know, obviously, I've done Highway One. You know, gone many many times from San Luis Obispo to uh, Monterey. Uh, that's just a gorgeous stretch of road. Uh, a few years ago, I finally got to do Tale of the Dragon. Nice. Which is incredible. 
Well, the Mira is fun. I have been able to drive one once a while back. Sold a race trailer to a guy who had just restored one, and he brought it over and let me drive it. And oh my gosh, that's one of the most beautiful cars in the world, I think. I mean, there's like a top 10 list of just insane cars, but it was quite fun to drive. I didn't get to do, you know, I wasn't on a track, so I didn't get to really drive it hard or anything. It was kind of on a back road thing, but just a delight. I mean, just everything you would hope it to be. But of course, lots of times those old cars compared to the ease of new cars these days, even new exotic cars uh, is quite different, but it's a different era. You just kind of put your string backs on and go back in time. Well, you've taken us on a fun ride today, Dean, and I'm very grateful to a mutual friend, Mark Osmondson, who's been a guest on the show. He's the one that introduced me to you. So, Mark, thank you for, he's brought me several really wonderful guests. I really appreciate that, Mark. And for you listeners that missed my talk with him, you can go back and find Mark Osmondson on the Cars yeah! website. Could you leave us with some parting words of inspiration and wisdom today, Dean? Well, the parting words I leave with all the students are work hard, be nice volunteer you know you know volunteer for things and you know it's funny you mentioned mark mark showed up i invited him he showed up at um when i spoke at unlv right before sema the other week and so he was able to share some words of wisdom on uh, automotive career searches because mark connects a lot of great people with companies yeah he does a great job how can people follow you or learn more about you uh, it's mainly probably it's on LinkedIn if they want mm-hmm. professional connections. I always tell people they better put a cover note explaining why they want to talk to me. <laughs> I don't add numbers just to add numbers. So, yeah. Yeah. uh, we better have met or, you know, if they say, I heard you in cars. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to connect. Okay. I'll accept that. But All right. Got to put a cover note. There you go. There you go. Well, Dean, this has been great fun and I can't thank you enough. I know we've been trying to connect for a while, so I know you're a super busy guy and I really appreciate you spending some time with us today to kind of teach others out there. There's lots of opportunities in the automotive sector, no matter what you like. Until you and I talk again, my friend, I'll see you down the road. Thank you. You're welcome. This was great. If you're listening to this program, there's a pretty good chance you believe what I believe, that the collector vehicles we love are more than just a means of getting from one place to the other. They're a part of our culture, our identity, and as a people, they bring us together at vintage races, classic car auctions, and thousand-mile rallies. That's why I support the RPM Foundation, which exists to ensure that the critical skills necessary to preserve and restore these important vehicles aren't lost to time. RPM stands for Restoration, Preservation, and Mentorship, and their goal is to inspire the next generation of vehicle restoration professionals through its outreach programs, and they include Shop Hop, Off to the Races, the RPM Future Class, and many others. These programs engage talented young people across the country and connect them with mentors and a variety of opportunities in the industry. For more information on how the RPM Foundation is driving the future of collector vehicles skill trade, visit rpm.foundation today. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah! Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah!